0: In the months since the 2020 election, pretty much everyone in politics has had their eyes on one state. Georgia. 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 Take a look at Georgia specifically. There are a couple of reasons for all this attention. First, the presidential election in Georgia was really close. Joe Biden won the state by less than 12,000 votes.
1: Biden has done what no other Democratic candidate has been able to do in some 28 years, turn Georgia blue. And
0: even though a recount backed up those results, President Trump continues to repeat this lie.
1: You know, we won Georgia, just so you understand.
0: Second, there's still unfinished political business. The presidential race has been called, but Georgia politics are going into another gear now. We are about to become the center of the two most expensive U.S. Senate races in history. Two runoffs and the balance of power in the Senate. On January 5th, the state will have not one, but two runoff elections to determine who will represent the state in the U.S. Senate. Oh, and those races? They'll also determine which party has control of the Senate. The battle for control of the Senate now rests on a pair of high-stakes runoff elections in Georgia. If Democrats win both seats, the chamber will be split 50-50, with Kamala Harris, as vice president and president of the Senate, casting any tie-breaking vote, which means Joe Biden will have an easier time getting Congress on board with his policy agenda.
1: I need two senators from this state. I want to get something done. Not two senators who are just going to get in the way
0: But if Republicans win even one of those Georgia races, they'll keep their majority and make things harder for then-President Biden.
1: This is literally the showdown of all showdowns in terms of politics and what it means.
0: In this episode, we talk to Emory University political science professor Andra Gillespie, who guides us through the Georgia Senate runoffs how we got here, and what we can learn from the state's shifting political landscape.
1: For the last 20 years, we've gotten used to Georgia being a solidly Republican state. And now we're going to have to go through a period of shared control and creating a new identity.
0: From the PBS NewsHour, this is America Interrupted. I'm Amna Navaz. Hey, Professor Gillespie, it's really nice to meet you here. How are you? I'm
1: doing well. How are you?
0: I'm very well. I'm sorry. It must be so quiet in Georgia politics these days. Wish it were, but that is not the case. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate you making the time. No problem. Before we dig in to the runoffs and the details and nitty gritty, let's just step back for a second. Sure. I think it's fair to say Georgia has been under the political microscope for years before this year and these runoff elections. Talk to us a little bit about that. Give us a little bit of that political and election history that's led us to this moment.
1: Well, Georgia has certainly been at the center of uh, shifts in partisanship amongst different groups. Um, And it's been at the center of demographic changes that are yielding new political outcomes. So, you know, Georgia, like many southern states, witnessed a realignment of its white population um, in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And that led to very competitive Senate races in the 80s and 90s. And that was because uh, white voters in Georgia were slowly shifting their party identification from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And it was starting to make Republican candidates more competitive in the state. And it culminates in the early to mid 2000s with a change in control of the governor's mansion and the state legislature. Shortly after this new year, a Georgia Republican will take an oath as governor for the first time since Ulysses Grant was president. But as that shift was happening and as Republicans were solidifying um, their control of elected offices in the state, there was also a demographic change that was happening that was going to take years to manifest itself. So, one, we see an increase in the 2000s in the African-American population. So this was a longstanding Democratic constituency. It grows in terms of its overall share of the electorate in the 2000s. And in the last 10 years, we have seen an increase in the uh, non- Black minority uh, population and electorate in the state, coupled with a large African-American electorate, and relative to its neighboring states, a non-trivial white Democratic portion of the electorate, uh, is making the Democratic Party more competitive. Now, the the Democrats have been very wishful in their thinking for the better part of the last decade. So I moved to Georgia in 2005 and, you know, probably within five or six years of moving, maybe seven, you know, I was hearing stories and was getting media requests about whether or not the Democratic Party, you know, was going to take over the state and win elections. And it seemed very premature in 2012 and 2013 to make those aims, but it wasn't far-fetched to think about the 2020s as being a year where Democrats were actually going to be able to be competitive and win statewide elections. Um, And so what happened in between that period was Democrats like Stacey Abrams noticed the demographics, noticed the uh, latent group of potential Democratic voters that were in the state that weren't registered to vote. And they made it their business to get them registered to vote and actually to get them educated on the voting process and to mobilize them to vote. I have focused my attentions on how do we build coalitions of voters who can change the dynamic and change the trajectory of policy. And too often, our voters don't register because they don't know why they should bother. It's not just enough to get people on the rolls, you've actually got to get them to turn out to vote. And that involves shoe leather politicking, that involves knocking on doors, that involves making phone calls, that involves sending text messages to people. And so they've developed that infrastructure in the last seven years. They've been narrowing the margins in races over that time period. And then it manifested itself with them being able to uh, win a new victory in the presidential race and in, in 2020.
0: Well, there is the latent part of the population, as you say, as demographic shift. Some people just aren't politically engaged for a number of reasons, not just particular to Georgia. But there's also the part of the populations that actively is disenfranchised or suppressed. And I remember talking to one expert a while ago who said that Georgia could be considered ground zero when it comes to voter suppression. What's been the impact of those kinds of tactics on political engagement in Georgia?
1: Well, v- voter suppression is a kind of shape-shifting concept. So you know, broadly defined, voter suppression is any type of systematic practice that uh, disenfranchises particular groups of people. So one of the um, you know things that we've seen happen in the last five to six years in Georgia is that there are certain practices that on the surface maybe weren't intended to disenfranchise certain groups, but if we look at sort of which p- people are most likely to sort of have their voting rights taken away from them, they are tend to be more likely to be people of color. So, for instance, in the mid-teens, you know, we dealt with issues of whose voter registration applications were more likely to be held up and not accepted because of a system called exact match, which is no longer legal in the state. So under the exact match system, if you uh, applied for voter registration, and the way your name was written on the voter registration rules didn't exactly match how your name was written on a driver's license record or on a social security record, then uh, it could be held up and you uh, for further scrutiny until you could provide proof of your identification. Um, the problem is is that sometimes this could happen because of clerical errors, and these are the types of, of of mistakes that are more likely to happen with unusually spelled names, which are more likely to affect people of color, people who are coming from different parts of the world who don't have standard European names. So you might not see the same mistakes on people named Mary or John, but if you have somebody who's coming from a different part of the world with a different spelling or a more unusual name because of the cultural heritage of that community, that's a problem.
0: So I want to bring us back to the runoff. The other reason that we're talking about what's happening in Georgia is because the state has different election rules, right? Most people think it's an election. Two people compete. Whoever gets the most votes wins why is that not the case in Georgia?
1: Well, the fact that we're having a runoff is, uh, you know, sort of evidence of the fact that you actually have to get a clear majority of the vote in order to be declared the winner in an election. And so this is true in both the primary and in the general election. So this doesn't apply to the presidential race, but it does apply to all state elections of which this would actually be considered one of them. So First, um, you know, in a primary, in order to win the Democratic or Republican primary in a state, you have to win outright with 50% plus one of the vote. If there are multiple candidates in the race, then the top two vote getters go to a runoff election. One of the justifications for doing that, especially in primary elections, is in a state where one party tends to be dominant for a particular period of time, is it fair for the winner of the primary election to win with a plurality and maybe even a small plurality of the vote in a primary election and then close to a general election victory, not even having the support of the majority of people in the primary.
0: In this case, the runoffs came from the general election in November, when both of the state's U.S. Senate seats were up for grabs. One of them was a special election with 21 candidates in all, so many people expected a runoff. But Gillespie says the fact that both Senate races went to runoffs was a surprise. Now there are four candidates, two for each seat. Republican Kelly Loeffler is battling Democrat Raphael Warnock. And Republican David Perdue is up against Democrat John Ossoff. Walk me through briefly each of the candidates. For anyone who's not familiar, if you had to kind of give a little brief on who each of these people are, what would you Let's just start with Senator David Perdue. What do people need to know about him?
1: So, Senator Perdue has just finished his first term in the U.S. Senate. Every generation has a moment of truth. Ours is right now. He is a businessman by profession. He uh, was a CEO of popular brands like Dollar General and Reebok. Um, And when he ran and won in 2014, he again ran in a multi-candidate field as the outsider who actually beat a number of Republican insiders, saying that he was going to bring an outsider's business perspective uh, to Washington. And he's largely kind of, you know, run and, 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 and governed in that particular way. He's been a strong ally of President Trump. His cousin is Sonny Perdue, the former governor of the state, who's now secretary of agriculture. Uh, so his conservative bona fides haven't been questioned um, in that particular respect. I want to say something personal for President Trump. God bless you. We love you, Mr. President. We love the First Lady. And we're going to fight and win those two seats and make sure you get a fair square deal in the state of georgia god bless you mr president he's running against john ossoff we have the power to make history as georgia voters john ossoff is a millennial candidate he uh, first came to a national attention in 2017 when he ran to replace tom price in the house of representatives in georgia's 6th congressional district that was uh, the most expensive congressional race to date again a couple dozen candidates, almost in that particular race. It was an open primary. He ended up running against Karen Handel in the runoff election. Handel beat him narrowly in a district that had once been represented by Newt Gingrich, um, and so he garnered a lot of attention for his ability to be able to raise money and for coming so close to victory in that particular race. And so he, you know, has run on providing a fresh new voice and a fresh new perspective. He, by occupation, is uh, CEO of a documentary film company. When he was in high school, he interned for John Lewis, and so he definitely touts his connection to John Lewis. In fact, what helped him kind of consolidate the field amongst the Democrats in 2017 was getting the endorsement from Congressman Lewis. Um, and so, you know, they're running a campaign that really kind of hews to the national sort of line. So uh, Purdue was painting Ossoff as a radical leftist he tries to say that he's a tool of communist China because of some documentary work that may have been done in the area. And, you know, Ossoff is portraying Purdue as being out of touch.
0: Senator Purdue, this man has not once come down from his private island to hold a single public town hall. He is a caricature of Washington corruption.
1: In the other race, you know, this is to fulfill the rest of the term of Senator Johnny Isaacson, who resigned because of health issues last year. That race was interesting because uh, Governor Brian Kemp actually held an open call. He actually solicited applications um, and resumes from people who wanted to be U.S. senator. And from that group, he chose Kelly Loeffler.
0: Are you ready to show America that Georgia's a red state?
1: Leffler's husband is the CEO of the company that owns the New York Stock Exchange. Before her appointment to the Senate, She uh, was the CEO of a subsidiary company that dealt in digital transactions. That's part of the same holding company. And uh, she is also a co-owner of the WNBA franchise, the Atlanta Dream. So she also brings a wealth of of, of business experience to the table. And, um, you know, when Kemp chose her, he chose her over Doug Collins, the congressman from the Augusta area, who reportedly was Donald Trump's choice to replace Isaacson in the Senate. And because Doug Collins decided to run against her in the general election for the first ballot, they ended up running against each other in a really acrimonious race where they were basically trying to out-Trump each other and questioning the conservative bona fides of each other. So uh, Leffler ended up portraying herself as more conservative than Attila the Hun. And we're also going to fight
0: for our conservative values. They're under attack every day. And it's not just high taxes and government run health care and open borders, but it's our right to free speech, religious freedom, our Second Amendment rights, the right to life, all the things that we need to continue fighting for. So her
1: opponent in the race was Raphael Warnock, Uh, Raphael Warnock became the leading Democrat who emerged um, out of the field uh, after he got the endorsement of uh, Barack Obama, Jimmy Carter. He had the endorsement of Stacey Abrams. Warnock is the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is Martin Luther King's home church.
0: If you want to know who informs me, you need look no further than Matthew 25. I'm a Matthew 25 Christian. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink love your neighbor and for me that means you don't get rid of your neighbor's health care particularly in the middle of a pandemic
1: he has been on the forefront of uh, ministerial sort of aims for social justice and he's been active in helping to register people of color to try to get them uh, registered to vote
0: when we make sure no one silences our voices or diminishes our vote we give honor to that great american covenant that we are one people knit together not by race or ethnicity or national origin or religion but knit together by an idea
1: e pluribus unum, out of many, one. But he's also had to answer questions about his theology. So, you know, he's a pro-choice pastor. This has certainly come up with people without questioning his Christian bona fides because he's taken stances that many evangelical Christians would um, argue sort of run counter to the faith. Uh, Leftler has tried to portray him as a, a radical leftist who supports defunding the police. And, uh, you know, given the fact that Warnock is African-American, some of these attacks have crossed the line in terms of sort of the racial undertones in terms of what she is presenting. So obviously, there's a lot at stake in both of these races. You're talking about control
0: of the Senate, right? And that's attracted a lot of money from a lot of different places. We've set records when it comes to the Democratic candidates in this case. Where is that money going? What does the get out the vote effort look like? And what kind of impact is that having on early turnout?
1: Well, what the money has bought, in addition to lots of ads that people are tired of seeing at this point, this has also uh, bought people the ability, um, both the campaigns, the parties, and even uh, nonpartisan groups, the ability to staff phone bank drives, to staff text messaging campaigns to remind people to turn out to vote, and even to staff canvassing. I have gotten multiple text messages a day from multiple groups reminding me of my vote, asking me to vote. Once they figured out that I had already voted, we asked three friends to vote. Certainly have received phone calls from multiple organizations where people are calling to remind me to vote. Last week, I think I actually ducked a canvassing visit because I was pulling out of of my garage on the way uh, to the store. And I happened to see people who I realized (laughs) were canvassers on my way out. Wait, wait,
0: wait. So even you, as someone who loves Georgia politics, you are avoiding having to interact with some of these folks right now.
1: Well, it was fortuitous. So I just happened to pull out (laughs) of my driveway, and I'm pulling down the street and I see somebody who I recognize wasn't exactly my neighbor and then I realized that it was two people and that they had a clipboard and I was like, oh they're canvassers. So I was like, this is the canvassing trip. Good. I don't need the reminder. <laughs> I mean you
0: talk about tens of millions, it's been a hundred million dollars for each candidate. Is that right so far? That has to fuel enormous ad buy. That has to fuel an enormous amount of calls. Are people getting sick of it?
1: Yes. Um, you know, and we, I think we'll have to figure out the right way to actually try to measure and model sort of like what the effect is, um, of that going forward. And if we look at what turnout looks like, 5 million people voted in the 2020 general election in November. So, I mean, you know, we're easily looking at a race where we could be looking at 3.75, maybe even 4 million people voting in a runoff election and to put that into perspective It was uh, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of two million people who cast ballots in the 2008 Senate runoff election, the last time that we had this type of race.
0: That's an incredible number. I mean, what does that number say to you?
1: it says that people are engaged. It says that people care. It says that people have been reminded. Um, and so I think what we're seeing is when campaigns are actually resourced enough to go touch every voter. And so we just have to figure out a way to harness that energy so that you don't have to raise a half a billion dollars in order to make sure that everybody turns out to vote.
0: So let me ask you about President Trump, because you've obviously mentioned, you know, he, he's had some kind of influence over the, the Republican uh, candidates, a sitting senator so far. But he, he did lose Georgia by a slim margin. He's refused to concede, right? He requested a recount that reaffirmed that he lost. And, and he's basically been calling the state's entire voting system into question, saying it was rigged, right, and saying without evidence that, that election officials worked against him. So what does all that mean for the runoff? Has any of that had an impact on voters?
1: Well, I mean, there are a couple of things that we can look at. So one, we can look at public opinion data. And so there's going to be some variability there because of some small sample sizes. But one of the things that we've noticed is that the vast majority of registered voters say that they plan on voting in this particular election. And of those who say that they're not voting, yeah, there are some who are talking about election results being rigged or that they're boycotting uh, the runoff election because of, of what happened in the general election. But that's not the majority Of folks who are showing up to vote in in these races so the vast majority of Republicans who are likely to show up in a runoff election are the types of faithful voters who show up in any election and they are probably more immune to President Trump's antics and behavior but I think the thing that is is pretty damaging for what President Trump has done is that In a race that you expect to be close, in a race where Democrats are more competitive than they were 12 years ago the last time this happened, you don't want to take any vote for granted and you win by getting as many people who showed up to vote in November out. And because a lot of people who turned out to vote for President Trump aren't considered regular voters or the faithful voters, right, you don't want to muddle the message and make it harder to get those people to turn out to vote again. So I think that that's the the, the big danger is that this is going to be a very narrow margin and that this could have a big enough effect on the margins that it could determine the outcome of the election. But we'll have to wait and see. Let's look forward
0: just a little bit now. We've said Obviously, there's a lot at stake when it comes to these two races. You're talking about control of the Senate. You're talking about how likely the president-elect is to be able to see through any part of his agenda, whether the Senate is Republican-controlled or not. Beyond that, what could this signal about politics in Georgia and nationwide?
1: You know, it it is a sign of the new normal in Georgia. So for the last 20 years, we've gotten used to Georgia being a solidly Republican state. And we've gotten used to Republicans being able to control all or nearly all of the levers of state government. And now we're going to have to go through a period of shared control and sort of creating a new identity, a new identity that's multicultural and a new identity that is more ideologically um, diverse. And what that means is that Democrats have a seat at the table and not just a seat at the table because, you know, they make up 30 or 40 percent of legislative bodies, but it's because they make up half and sometimes slightly more than half of the voters in given elections. And so people are going to have to learn how to share power with people of different parties. And they're going to have to learn how to share power with people who don't look like them and who don't always uh, believe the same things that they believe and have the same values. So, you know, we're just going to go through a period of growing pains.
0: So people spent years asking you, when was Georgia going to go blue? When's Georgia going to go blue? What's the new question people are going to ask all the time?
1: I mean, I think people are, is Georgia blue? And for, you know, the foreseeable future, I'm like, no, it's purple. <laughs> um, so even I think, you know, and, and I would still say that even if Kelly Leffler and David Perdue end up winning, you know, I expect that the gubernatorial race, you know, which could very well be a rematch between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams is probably going to be as close, if not closer than it was in 2018. And that there are going to be some other places where we're going to see Democrats win something that they haven't won before. But that doesn't mean that the Republicans are, are totally counted out in this state. I don't think that that's true at all.
0: Professor Gillespie, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. For full coverage of the Georgia Senate runoffs, including live results on election night, be sure to visit our website, pbs.org newshour. This episode was produced by Sam Lane and Vika Aronson and edited by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpo. Fact-checking by Leah Nagy and Bella Isaacs-Thomas. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our thanks to Travis Dobb, Vanessa Dennis, James Williams, and Maura Shannon. Our executive producer is Sarah Just. Thanks for listening.